Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Second uh, Corinthians in the New Testament. Second Corinthians. If you don't know right where that is, it comes after First Corinthians. <clears throat> this morning we start a brand new series of uh, sermons. For the next few weeks or months or however long it takes, we're going to make our way through this uh, book, this epistle of the Apostle Paul called Second Corinthians. This was written to the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth uh, in the first century was probably the place most like modern America. It was, uh, had a very diverse population, and consequently uh, certain uh, conflicts and divisions were always present. It was a great center of commerce. It was a big city with big city problems. It was a very religious place, filled with all kinds of different religions, actually. And it's known, as is our country increasingly, for its self-centered pleasure-seeking. But the Apostle Paul had sunk a good bit of effort into this uh, city of Corinth to build a church there. He had planted the church there years earlier, uh, working as a tent maker in order to support himself while he did, so that he would make the gospel of no charge to these people. He'd made several trips there since he worked there initially to uh, correct some problems and to encourage these people in their faith. And he wrote at least four letters to this church. We only have two of them remaining today. Uh, what we call 1 Corinthians is most likely the second letter that he wrote. And this book of 2 Corinthians is actually uh, appears to be the fourth letter that he wrote to this church. The others uh, do not remain. Now this particular epistle is uh, interesting. Um, on the one hand, it may be Paul's most pastoral letter. Here he opens himself up and shares his heart with, his people, with these people. We will hear um, of his hurt and we'll feel his uh, uh, struggle and his hardship. We'll hear of his sense of calling, his hope, the cost of his commitment to Christ. And here we will come to understand how Paul viewed his own life and his own ministry. More than perhaps any other letter, this epistle is autobiographical. Paul shows us uh, what he's like in this letter. At the same time, many scholars note that this is the most difficult of Paul's epistles. Primarily it's difficult because we do not know exactly the situation that was the occasion of this letter. So we're always reading between the lines, trying to figure out what Paul is addressing uh, as, as we try to, uh, to understand what he's saying so that we can apply it. And of course, the fact that we don't always know leaves us uh, trying to apply truth that we're a little uncertain about uh, uh, why it was there in the first place. So it's a difficult book. Nonetheless, this is one of my very favorite books of the Bible. That's probably why I have uh, seized upon someone's suggestion that we do this next. I've, uh, we've studied this in a Bible study, but I've never preached through this book, and I'm anxious to do so. I, um, every time I read it, which I do often, uh, God uh, brings me great encouragement and challenge uh, from this book, and I, I hope it will be one of your favorites, too, by the time we're done. Well, let's uh, begin it. We'll read the salutation, uh, the greeting in the first two verses, and then this morning a look at this first paragraph, verses 3 to 7. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all the saints throughout Achaia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the suffering of Christ, sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. I don't know if you've ever taken your kids to the park, if you have little kids, and the kids want to go on the merry-go-round, and some other kids are already playing on that, and it's going around, and of course kids like to make you go around fast, and somehow with your little kid you're trying to jump on this thing at just the right place where there's a spot while it's going around. Uh, I think of that because what we have in this text is, is somewhat of a circle of truth. I'm not saying it's circular reasoning, but a, a circle of truth. We have point one, and then point two, and then point three, which leads us to point one, to point two, to point three, to one, two, three, and around it goes. And somehow we've got to jump in there. So hang on, we're going to jump in at what we will call point one, but by the time we get to the end, we'll come back to this. Uh, wherever we get on, uh, it, it keeps coming around. The first truth, then, is this. Christians will face trouble. Christians will face trouble. Warren Wiersbe, a pastor who's written a lot of uh, popular works, tells us that there are ten basic words for suffering in the Greek language, and that Paul uses five of them here in this book. Paul most frequently uses a word which is translated trouble, which means narrow or confined or under pressure. In other words, this speaks of the pressure of being hemmed in or confined with nowhere to go, pressured and hampered by circumstances. That's what he's talking about when he says trouble. Now, the world is full of such pressure, such trouble. And God's people are, no, are not exempt. There are pressures, stresses, just in, the, in, in living. There's the, the, the pressures of schedules and deadlines and relationships and illnesses and our own frailty. And sometimes those pressures grow huge in the face of death, unemployment, war, divorce. These pressures of life. In, in a fallen world, are, 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 are not insignificant. They're, they're immense sometimes. And we deal with those just like everyone else. I'm reminded of the poet Edgar Allan Poe and his horrifying tale, The Pit and the Pendulum. You want a tale about pressures? Here's one. The pendulum swings with the razor's edge on the bottom and it gets lower and lower and lower and lower as he waits for it to slice him. And then the walls of his dungeon come in, men, squeeze him, squeeze him toward the pit, the abyss. See, Paul understood that the pressures of life were more than a little unwanted stress. But the trouble Christians face 
is even more specific than the general stress of living in a fallen world. For we also face a certain kind of trouble because of our relationship to Christ. We read about it in verse 5 here. The sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives. In fact, here in verse 5, Paul changes from the word trouble or stress, the pressure that he's been using, and he picks up a different word that's translated suffering here, a word which is most often used for the troubles that Christ endured. Christians, because of our relationship to Jesus, face a whole category of trouble that goes beyond what is common to the whole world. Just some examples. The agony of soul that is the daily affair of the Christian as he struggles with the flesh and the spirit. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the, and the Holy Spirit lusts against the flesh and, and there's a battle that goes on so that we can't just do what we please like the rest of the world says for we're caught in this struggle with our own flesh. That's trouble that the unbeliever doesn't know anything about. Or the trouble of, of living as a stranger and an alien in the world. We don't just put down our roots and go with the flow and feel at home. We're constantly swimming upstream. We're constantly going against the tide. It's unique to the children of God. Or the suffering of doing good in Christ's name, doing what God says, and only to have it misinterpreted or to receive evil back. Sometimes it uh, breaks out in overt persecution, where we are attacked because of our relationship, our connection with Christ. Remember, that's what Jesus said to Saul of Tarsus, who was persecuting the church. And when he met Saul on the road to, to Damascus, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting not my church, not those Christians, those believers? Why are you persecuting me? Paul was after these Christians. He didn't even know them, but he hated Christ. Hard to get your hands on Christ, but you get a hold of a Christian and wring his neck. That's what Paul was doing. So that as a Christian, the suffering of Christ, the suffering of being connected with Christ, flows over into our life on top of the normal pressures that everybody else faces. Christians will face trouble, folks. In this book of 2 Corinthians, we learn more than anywhere else how much the Apostle Paul's life was filled with suffering. Before we move on to the next thing, why on earth would anybody choose such a life then? Well, because this is the way of truth. <laughs> That's why. Because in Jesus we have forgiveness of sins and eternal life, which nothing else and no one else can give us. Because this present suffering is not worth comparing with the eternal weight of glory that awaits us in Christ. And because already in this life, even in the midst of the trouble, even in the midst of the suffering, we would taste already a bit of the comfort. Which brings us to our second point, that God comforts us in our trouble. God comforts us in our trouble. It's well known that repetition is the key to learning. Well, if that's true, God must really want us to learn about his comfort in the time of trouble. For in, the, in verses 1 to 7, the little word comfort is used no less than 10 times. God wants us to know that he comforts us in our trouble. 
This point is made powerfully right at the beginning in the way that the Lord addresses, the, the way that the Lord is addressed in, in, in this passage in verse 3. He is the Father of compassion. He is the God of all comfort. You see, comfort is not a little additional duty that God picked up that's heaped on his already busy schedule. And perhaps sometimes he might just uh, forget about it and it might uh, and let it slip. No, comfort and compassion flow from the very being of God. They're reflections of his character. Think of how this truth is communicated in some of the names of God that uh, are revealed to us in the scriptures. He's called the God of Jacob. Not just the God of Abraham, or the God of David, or the God of both. The God of Jacob, that conniving deceiver, our forefather. God's a God of comfort and compassion if he's the God of Jacob. He's called Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. He's called Jehovah Shalom. The Lord of peace by Gideon. Called the Prince of Peace by Isaiah. He's the wonderful counselor, the one we turn to in our trouble. He's the eternal father who has compassion on his children because he understands how we're made. He knows we're just dust. And here he's the father of compassion, the God of all comfort. Of course God comforts us in, his, in our trouble. That's who he is. That's what he does. So what kind of comfort does he give us? How does he comfort us? I thought about that a little bit, tried to reflect on it, and let me suggest a few different things. I think he comforts us by the reassurance that he's in control in the midst of trouble. We tend to forget that. In fact, uh, the Lord challenged his people through the prophet Isaiah who said, Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. No, it's not. Your way is not hidden from God. Your cause is not disregarded. He hasn't, he hasn't um, uh, 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 ignored and neglected to see your trouble. In fact, uh, in the story of Job, we can see how total God's control of trouble really is. Remember, Satan wanted to just out and out destroy Job. And God said, oh no, you can do only what I allow you to do. He set a hedge about Job. He said to, to, to Satan, you can go this far and not one step farther. You can take his houses and lands, but you cannot touch him. And later, you, you can afflict him, but you cannot kill him. God is holding the reins. And what even Satan, with all of his destructive desires, wants to do to Job. And God said, no, I hold the reins. I'm in control. What a comfort. God's in control. In the terms of Lord Jesus uh, teaches us this. When he says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet, not, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. And even the hairs of your head are numbered. So don't be afraid. You're worth more than sparrows. If not one sparrow can fall to the ground without God's notice, no trouble can come to you without God's notice. God is in control. He holds the reins of every circumstance, and that brings comfort to us to know that even in the worst situation, 
This is not chaos. It's in the hands, the strong, firm, loving hands of my heavenly Father. You see, our trouble is not an oversight on God's part. The same God who sent his Son to suffer has simply called us to enter into that suffering. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter 2. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. We're called to suffer. Trouble, no matter how difficult, is not an accident for God's people. God's plan is that the suffering of Jesus should flow into the lives of his children so that the comfort of Jesus might be known. This is certain. God comforts us in our trouble. Another way that he comforts us, I think, is by telling us his purposes in our suffering. Romans chapter 8 is a great chapter on this subject. There God outlines his sovereign plan for us. Before the beginning of time, God uh, chose us and he chose us to do what? To call us, to justify us, and to take us to glory. That's what. So here between God choosing us before the beginning of time and our, and our glory after the end of time, God says, and now I will take everything and work absolutely everything together for my good purposes for you to take you from there, here to there. Specifically, he said, I'm going to use all the pressures and the struggles to conform you to the image of my son, Jesus. Now, that's a comfort for us when we go through trouble to realize that God is working his purposes out, that the suffering of Jesus has flown into our, uh, into our life in order that we might be conformed to be like him. But all of this is part of the process of God taking us to glory. It's in good hands. It's on schedule. It's according to plan. And if God is working on his plan, of course we can struggle. Of course we can struggle, suffer for a little while if there's glory awaiting. And so we persevere because we understand what God is doing. So God comforts us in our trouble by giving us understanding. One more way that he comforts us is that his spirit speaks his word to our hearts, bringing us peace. There are a myriad of promises in God's word, promises which speak to our times of trouble. I remember as a little boy, we had a little wooden box, some of you may have had such a thing, a little wooden music box that sat on our table, and if you opened the top, it played the hymn, Standing on the Promises, and inside were all these tiny little cards about half the size of a business card. And if you pull them out, every one of them had a different promise on it. So you'd pull them out and uh, you'd read things like, Fear not, I am with you. Or, My grace is sufficient for you. Or, God is faithful, will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able. Or, My God shall supply all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Or, I will never leave you and forsake you. Promises, promises, promises. And they're wonderful things and worthy of our memorization and of course, we were encouraged to memorize such things. Well, but in the time of trouble, those promises become so much more. During the time of trouble, the Holy Spirit of God takes that word of God and speaks it as comfort, as balm in the deepest recesses of our hearts. His word permeates and soothes 
and heals our soul in a way that no human words can touch us. You see, we would never really know the power of God's word and the living dynamic of his spirit causing us to hear it as the word from the Lord if we never experienced trouble beyond our ability to cope. But God comforts us by his word and his spirit. God comforts us in our trouble. No wonder the Heidelberg Catechism starts here. As it begins to unfold the great grace of God in the gospel, where does it start? With us here in our trouble. And that wonderful question, so what's your only comfort in life and in death? Well, just this, that I belong body and soul, that I'm not my own, but I belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ was fully paid for all my sins by his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. And because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. What a great truth. Yes, God's people will suffer trouble. But God comforts us in our trouble. Well, one more truth that our passage teaches us here that follows on those two. And that's this, that God is equipping us to comfort one another. God is equipping us to comfort one another. It seems that there are two different kinds of people when it comes uh, to trouble. Some people seem to almost like the trouble, even though it certainly causes pain, but trouble somehow defines them. I mean, it's almost as if they, 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 they wear a little sign. I am a victim. Ask me and I'll tell you about it, you know. And so you ask, and they tell you. You sympathize, and they tell you. You listen, and they tell you. And finally, you get away, and you say, Phew, glad I got away from that. You're that kind of person. And then there are others who have trouble, same kinds of trouble, and hate that little drama that I just described. And they will never talk about their trouble. If you ever hear anything about their trouble, it will be long after it's already resolved. No one is going to paint me as a victim. So what about this? Should we talk about our trouble or shouldn't we? Well, let me make an important distinction here. There is a big difference between having trouble and just talking about it all the time. Or having trouble in which you are comforted and 
in order to turn around and to help someone else in trouble. Those are two different things. The first is simply playing the victim. Always needing attention. Always needing assurance. The second is becoming the veteran. Toughened by the trouble. Wiser for the experience. And now equipped to recognize and to come to the aid of someone else who's in the same trouble. Both involve speaking of the trouble, but they're totally different. The victim or the veteran. It's the difference between the Dead Sea, into which everything flows, but from which nothing escapes, and thus it becomes salty and lifeless or the glacial stream that flows from beneath the brutal ice pack but brings life to everything it waters as it trickles down the mountain. That's the difference. The old professor, the late Philip Hughes, explained it well. He said, the comfort received from God is not intended to terminate in the recipient. It has further, a further purpose, namely to fit the Christian for the godlike ministry of comforting and encouraging others, whatever the affliction they may be suffering. This is one of the principles of Christian service. The Christian receives in order to pass on to others what he has received. He is blessed so that he may be a blessing to others. You see, in bringing us comfort, God is equipping us to be able to comfort others. God doesn't just comfort us so we feel better. God's not driven by our desire to feel good. No, he causes us to enter into the suffering of Christ, and then he comforts and encourages us by the word and spirit of Christ, and in so doing, God is training us to be ministers of Christ. To go in his name, equipped by the work of his spirit in us, to bring hope and comfort and grace to broken and hurting people just like us. God is equipping us to comfort one another. In fact, this connection between us, whereby being joined to Christ, joins us to one another whereby being comforted by Christ obligates us to comfort one another. This bond between us is so real that in verse 6, Paul just abbreviates the whole process and says, if we're distressed, it's for your comfort. He leaves off the whole thing of him being comforted and him turning around and learning how to address them in their distress. He just abbreviates it. If we're distressed, you're comforted. In fact, in verse 7, he goes even further and just says, you share in our sufferings. In other words, his ministry to them was so much a point of his own suffering that Paul's suffering was really about being comforted so God could comfort them. It was as if they were suffering in the first place, and Paul was just the instrument to work out the comfort. Well, you cannot overstate this. God is equipping us to comfort one another. 
Not to be whiners talking about our trouble, but to be veterans who comfort one another. And the truth is, isn't this how it works? Who best gives comfort to those who grieve? Those who can lecture on the causes of death? Those who've read all the books about the stages of grief? No. Those who have grieved and survived and are to live another day. And who best comforts and helps those who are broken? Those whose lives are all together and they know no problems? No. Those who can instruct you on where you went wrong and why your life is all messed up? No. Those who have themselves fallen flat on their face and experienced the grace of God that was greater than their weakness and their frailty and their sin. And now can mercifully bind up the wounds and speak with certainty of God's mercy to broken people and help to lift the needy from the ash heap of life. God comforts us so that we could comfort one another. You know, when trouble comes invariably, our first question is, why, Lord, why? That's a hard question. There's no nice, easy, pat answer to that. But here God gives us at least the beginning of an answer. We live in a broken, fallen world full of trouble. But God loves this broken and fallen world and is extending grace and comfort to sinners. Indeed, the reason that Jesus came into the world and gave his life was to save these undeserving rebels. So now God is going to send us as ministers of grace, speaking words of reconciliation and healing. But how will we ever be effective? Why should anyone listen to us? Well, because God allows us, in union with Christ, to enter into suffering just like everyone else. And then he speaks his word of grace and comfort to us in our own brokenness, real brokenness, and thus equips us to bear witness, not of some theory we learned in school, but of the life-giving grace of God, which is our own only hope. God's equipping us to comfort one another. So let me talk real plainly to you for a moment, you, as the people of Wiser Lake Chapel. Before I ever came here 10 years ago, I heard of your reputation. Maybe you don't even know what your reputation is. Here's, it, here's what it is. Well, at the chapel, there's quite a gathering of uh, the misfits of the county. That's really a diverse bunch there. Well, here you'll find the hurting, the wounded, and the broken. Here's where sinners are welcomed. People have messed up their lives so bad that they're really not welcome in other churches. Because everyone knows that anyone is welcome at the chapel. <laughs> That's what I heard. 
That's why I came, because that seemed to include me. That seemed to be the kind of people that Jesus loved and hung out with. And as I look around this morning, and I know you, most of you, a little bit, and you know me a little bit, and don't we you kind of have to say, yeah, not much has really changed, has it? <laughs> but has God not blessed us here? Well, other churches may read the law more often than we do, but does anyone know the grace of God more than this body? Do you remember when you couldn't even lift your head, you were so ashamed of your sin? And now you stand erect and boldly and joyfully sing God's praise knowing that it's true? Have you not personally experienced the power and the deliverance of the gospel here? Have you not been reconciled to Christ, set free from sin's hopelessness? That we've, most of us, been too far down to ever boast of being something, has God not lifted us out of the ash heap and set us with the princes of his people? Sure he has. Look around you. This is a display case of the trophies of God's grace. Look at us. So how is it that I would ever hear in this body things like, well, I just don't feel that anyone there cares about me. Or, the truth is, when I have trouble, there's not a person in the chapel I feel I could talk to. Or, well, I could never tell anyone here how I really struggle. How could that be true at Wiley Chapel of all places? Are we now people who have it all together? That's how we present ourselves sometimes, and it's not true, is it? Have we ceased to be needy? Ceased to be in the company of the forgiven? I don't think so. I think what happens is that in our own desperate need for comfort from God, we allow our focus to be fixed on our own trouble and our own need. And perhaps forget or never knew that all along in all our struggles, God's purpose was to equip us to be comforters, not just to comfort us. Perhaps we bought the world's lie that says we will find ourselves when we focus on ourselves. But Jesus says, you will find yourself when you lose yourself for me. You will save your life when you begin to give it away for me. You see, my fear is that while God has gone to such great lengths together in this place, these wonderful trophies of his grace, these redeemed sinners with stories to tell of the grace of God, my fear is that we might become the Dead Sea Church. Where untold resources pour upon us and come to a dead end. Where comfort pours in 
to sit and stagnate. When God has comforted us to make us ministers of grace to people needing comfort. And so this morning I challenge you. Look around you. Sitting in this room are lonely, hurting people. Speak to them. Put your arm around them. Love them. Dare to admit that you're a lonely, hurting person too. Begin to give yourself away. And if that's true in this little church, it's even more true in the world around us. People are lonely and broken. Everybody's family is messed up. Everybody struggles. But people are convinced that Christians don't care. They just want to judge you. But you see, God would have this body of the broken and restored, the sinful but forgiven. He would have this body of those who maybe don't articulate the faith so well, but know Jesus. He would have this body of saints bearing all the scars of our wounds. He would have this body. If we could ever be set free from our fears so that we begin to love people who are broken like us and to speak to people who are as lonely as we are and to tell people of the forgiveness and the life that we know in Jesus. Oh, what might God do with this church? What impact might this little body have? You see, this was God's vision for the church at Corinth. Paul wrote about it in his first letter. There he wrote, this could be written to the chapel, couldn't it? Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Isn't that what God's done at Wiser Lake Chapel? Isn't that God's vision for us too? As it was for the church at Corinth, which was a hurting, messed up, problem-filled church. You bet that's exactly God's will for us. For he has once again called together this motley collection of nobodies. This time not in Corinth, but right here. But God, through all of our brokenness, is equipping us to comfort one another, to take the word of comfort in Jesus that we've received, and to speak it and to show it to broken, lowly people like us. What a beautiful circle of truth we have here. 
these opening verses of 2 Corinthians, in a way it doesn't matter where you get on, you keep coming back to the same place. Christians will face trouble. We live in a troubled world. We're associated with Christ. We will face trouble. But God comforts us in our trouble. That's the kind of God God is. The God of all comfort. And he's given us his word and his spirit. He comforts us. But God is equipping us to comfort one another. When we're joined to Christ, we're also joined to one another. So when God comforts us, it's for the sake of the comfort of the whole body. And why does the body need such comfort? Because Christians will face trouble. But God comforts us in our trouble. Not just for our own pleasure, but God comforts us that we might be comforters to one another. Why do we need to do that? Because Christians face trouble. But God comforts us in our trouble because he wants to make us comforters to those who face trouble. But God comforts us in it. And around and around it goes. It's not hard to understand. We just need to jump on and begin to live in light of these wonderful truths. Amen. Well, Father, take your word and apply it to our hearts. May it never be said again in this place that nobody cares. Forgive us if we've presented ourselves as those who had it all together and we're ready to judge but not ready to dirty our hands to come alongside someone who is broken. For Lord, you know our brokenness. You know the filth from which you have cleansed us. Lord, we bear the scars, and you know it, and we know it. May we not boast of anything else but the grace of God that's in Jesus. Grace that we have experienced that that is our comfort and our hope. So that you might make us instruments of peace and joy and love and grace to one another and to a world that doesn't know you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.